0: This is the 966 episode 97, Mr. Richard Wilson.
1: Holy mackerel. I got all my, all my notes. I've been putting in 96. I got, I can't keep up with it. I got to go revamp. You know, you know, one big thing, 96, you know, yellow, 96 Guess. 96. So I have to, you're just fouling me up. I can't keep up with it. It's super
0: weird because on the podcast platform, um, that we use to publish to pretty much every podcast platform out there, there's like a there's a weird disconnect between how many episodes it says we've done and the official number which we keep internally, Richard, at 97. Um, and I'm pretty sure we haven't messed that up yet, which is cool. We've messed up a lot of things, but not that. And uh, and I really am uh, confident in saying it's 97, Richard, because I remember last week was 966, episode 96, which was really rolled off the tongue for us. So.
1: No, I, I, have, I have no doubt I'm wrong. I just, you know, I have to go back and clean up all my files. Well, the good news, Richard, is
0: that despite our p- possible mess up here at the beginning, we have an amazing guest joining us this week in just a few minutes, American journalist, author, media executive, Pulitzer Prize winner, Karen Elliott House.
1: Yeah. Just awesome conversation, Richard. Big one. And yet another... Uh, uh, um, you know, obviously, she's all that for sure. And she's done, uh she just recently published uh, her most recent paper on Saudi Arabia, the last, the most recent string of four going back to, I think, 2016, just extraordinary depth of uh, interaction engagement on Saudi Arabia. And what, again, we talk about the show and how fortunate we feel. What I love is that, all right, so this is this all-star journalist with ex- exceptionally deep understanding of Saudi Arabia. And we reach out to her and say, hey, would you like to join the show? Yeah, absolutely, love to. And, you know, because that's just even now, I don't anticipate that. So it's just so nice when somebody of this caliber says, hey, I'd love to come on and have a good conversation.
0: This was from a mutual friend of ours. Um, And I I just, I want to use, I want to mention this one really quickly because we've been getting, it was almost like a throwaway Comment that I made about um, not getting any female Uber drivers in Saudi Arabia, despite taking maybe, I mean, not an exaggeration, 150 Uber trips in the last eight, nine months in Riyadh, uh, mostly. I've never had a, a single female Uber driver and we've heard a lot of feedback on that. And I guess people are slowly listening to segments, but they overwhelmingly are saying, you are aware that you can filter out men as part of that. Well, this one uh, was from our friend Abdul Rahman. He said, just FYI in Tabuk city, taking an Uber to the airport and the driver is a Saudi woman. So Richard, I'm b- beginning to think.
1: Maybe, yeah, it is you. Maybe
0: it's a me thing. hundred uh, percent, it's you. <laughs> 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 and this, um, should be, this should be a meme shortly. It should be, it should <laughs> be. And then hopefully an NFT can make a little, uh, money on that would be really cool. <laughs> okay. um, Richard, so we're, we've got a great conversation coming up with Karen Elliott House. Um, normal episode this week. We are approaching rapidly the hundredth episode, which is exciting. Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling and a little scary. We've been doing this uh, for for now a good amount of time. So uh,
1: pretty cool. Very cool.
0: Shall we get to it? What's your one big thing that, this week, Richard?
1: Um, it's something that we talk about sort of mystified. Is that the term? I don't know. So as we know, uh, Saudi Israeli normalization is, is, uh, the hot topic. Um, just a week ago today, Thomas Friedman, who seems sort of like cipher for this, you know, what's important in the Middle East. If Thomas Friedman is writing about it, did a piece called Biden is weighing a big Middle East deal in the New York times. Um, and he talked about this this proposition. Um, essentially, it's a, a, a you know it's a U.S.-Saudi security pact that produces normalization relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, uh, as he terms it. It would be a game changer for the Middle East, bigger than the Camp David peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, because peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia would open the way for peace between Israel and the whole Muslim world, including giant countries like Indonesia and maybe even Pakistan it would be a significant Biden foreign policy legacy. Okay, I think we can all understand that. Um, what trips me up is, A, how does it happen? And B, what do people, what do parties get out of it? And in this regard, we we had a really, really good uh, article by our friend, doctor Abilziz Agashayan. Uh, published in the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington just at the end of July, so less than a week ago. It's called Israeli Strategies to Preserve and Expand the Abraham Accords. Um, And I want to go through this because it talks about the Israeli strategy and and their motivation, and and maybe it explains why this topic continues to be front and center, even though logically it it doesn't seem like it's feasible at the moment. And before I do that, I think we need to understand that the Abraham Accords have been very successful commercially. Uh, UAE Israel commercial flows, which in 2020, at the time of the signing of the Abraham Accords, of were in the tens of millions of dollars, in 2022 hit 2.6 billion and it's expected to reach 3 billion this year. UAE has become the 16th largest trading partner for Israel. More than a million Israelis have traveled to the UAE um, since the signing, although it's been one-sided. You don't have Emiratis going the other way, or many. So on the commercial side, absolute success. On the political side, different story. Um, The Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which is a pro-Israeli think tank, recently did a survey, and it found that only 27% of respondents in the UAE 20% in Bahrain viewed the accords as positive for the region. This is down from 47% in the UAE and 45% in 2020 when the accords were signed. Likewise, in Saudi Arabia, support for the accords have fallen by half to 20%. So uh, on the streets, in the population, there's some political disenchantment with the Abraham Accords. Economically, certainly with regard to UAE, it's thriving. So so let me return to our good friend, Dr. Al-Gashayan's piece. And he 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 notes three approaches. Before we get into that, and this is important in terms of, I think, perspective from the Israeli perspective. Uh, Aziz, Dr. Al-Gashayan says, for Israel, the Abraham Accords were a monumental milestone. They embodied a peace for peace peace-for-peace formula that bypasses Israeli concessions. As Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in June 2021, the, quote, Abraham Accords enabled us us to get out of the equation of land for peace to peace for peace, and we did not give up a span, unquote. I'm sure you know this, Lucian, but uh, a span is a biblical term, and it's equivalent to basically uh, nine inches. So here we have the, uh, you know, Israeli prime minister essentially saying, you know, we got something for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the political disenchantment uh, in the UAE and Bahrain is, is part of the agreement that they had with, with Israel and the Abraham Accords was that Israel would refrain from annexing further occupied territories. And we see what's going on in the occupied territories at the moment. So, I mean, it, it, you know, again, that's not well-received in Emirati or Bahraini audiences. Um, so anyway, here's the here's the strategy, according to Dr. Al-Gashayan. First strategy, focus on non-GCC periphery states and Muslim states. So Eli Cohen, Israel's foreign minister is, you know, trying to normalize relations with Mauritania, Somalia, Niger, Indonesia. Um, you know, so they see, Israel sees the, the Abraham accords as, as it working in two spheres. One is the core, dominated by Saudi Arabia and the GCC. The other is the periphery, non-Arab, Muslim-majority states. Um, so second strategy, people-to-people contacts, tacit Israeli GCC uh, cooperation. And we see this in things like trade with the UAE travel of emiratis here we just had an announcement of a of a, a leading israeli renewable energy solar energy uh tie up with al-ajan and company which is a saudi firm um you'll see on, you know on israeli television you know all sorts of golf academics and analysts and they're typically emirati based uh discussing the potential for the abraham accords you don't know you don't really get critics of it on israeli um you know channels and that sort of thing so you know, they, they really, and you know, they're pushing for, you know, direct flights from Tel Aviv to Medina and, and these sorts of things that are the people to people contacts. And, and to be honest, you know, from Saudi Arabia's perspective, the, the commercial uh, tie-ups, you know, happy to see, I don't think there's a big issue with that. The third strategy, and this is really interesting. And this is where I think Lucian, you and I sort of go, what's, what's at the core of this? Third strategy, again, according to Dr. Al-Gashayan, it's an excellent piece, is constant speculation. And I'll read his, his note. His is Israeli strategy for keeping the Abraham Accords alive is inducing strategic speculation. Israeli officials and others do so by suggesting that more official cooperation or, quote-unquote, breakthroughs with Gulf states are on the horizon. In turn, such speculation can be politicized or even framed to inaccurately portray the Abraham Accords as vibrant and expanding. While business between the countries has continued, the Abraham Accords have become increasingly unpopular in the Gulf Streets, and doubts over the merits of the Abraham Accords as a framework for regional peace have also increased. So we see this. We're we're deep in the news from the region every day. And, you know, uh, uh, Eli Cohen, again, the Israeli foreign minister, just this week said Israel is the closest it has ever been to a peace agreement with Saudi Arabia. Adding that he expected a deal to be announced by next March. Um, you know, also in in the article is, but members of Israel's government far right coalition have rejected concessions towards Palestinians as part of an agreement. So, so again, my confusion. It's apparent what Israel will gain such a deal, especially in the deal that they they envision, which is not giving up anything for normalization with, in, with saudi arabia which would be a tremendous coup all right mm. so they you know they're happy to throw out all this speculation and 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 claim things are moving along maybe uh inaccurately so um it doesn't change the fact that um you know senior uh white house uh personnel i have visited saudi arabia to talk about this it doesn't change the fact that apparently You know, the top uh, intelligence uh, guy in Israel recently visited the U.S. But again, we don't know, you know, in the readout of that uh, Jake Solomon visit to Saudi Arabia, they didn't mention this. Um, But anyway, it, it, it feeds speculation. So I'm trying to understand what people would get, what the parties would get. What does the United States get? And a large part of the argument, as far as I can tell, is that such a deal would counter China's growing influence in Saudi Arabia and initiate a new era of U.S.-Saudi relations. Um, sort of a corollary of this, but it, maybe it shouldn't be a corollary, but it seems to be. Uh, some believe it would strongly contribute to achieving a two-state solution for Israel and Palestine, or more realistically, a stop to Israeli annexation of occupied territories. And some people in Biden's circle seem to think it would help in the 2024 presidential election. Um, What does Saudi Arabia get? Uh, So what is Saudi Arabia asking for? According to Thomas Friedman and others, they're asking for a viable security arrangement with the United States, NATO-like. They're asking for uh, more and more timely, greater and more timely access to key defense weaponry and they want a green light along with US participation in building this nuclear energy sector um part of what's being sold to them is that you do this and you engender goodwill with congress and the american public um i don't know what that's worth and i don't know how tenable that is or how you know how that would stick i mean uh, congress you know house in particular is chaotic sort of a political quagmire. Uh, you know, can it possibly get the two-thirds, uh, two-thirds of the members to vote for a security agreement with Saudi Arabia? Unlikely. So what's what's in it for Saudi Arabia? Prestige? They're being, you know, recognition, you know, they're being um uh, treated and engaged with like they are a serious middle power, you know, of the South Korea, Brazil, and and even EU. Uh, types. Uh, so that's good. Uh, I think it's interesting, Lucian, and and you and I are baseball fans, uh, and MLB major league baseball just ended their trade deadline, right? You know, I'm following closely what the Washington nationals did. And for fans, it's always exciting because you could see if new players are acquired or current players are traded. Um, but regardless of what you're doing, a good general manager will let it be known that a player or players are available even if there's no intent on selling. So just to see if some t- team comes back with a crazy over-the-top, you know, can't-say-no offer, it's what good GMs do. And I sort of feel what that's what sort of what Saudi Arabia is doing. You know, it's floated an off there. Maybe the U.S. will take it, maybe not. Either way, Saudi Arabia gains attention, prestige, and a recognition, really, of its diplomatic and geostrategic value. You know, we'll sit and wait and see. I just don't see, from Saudi Arabia's perspective, them believing for a moment that uh, Netanyahu, with his current government, could push through any kind of uh, of change in their policies towards the occupied territories. I'm sure they understand that the the, the likelihood of two thirds of Congress signing off on a security arrangement is is extremely long, and as they understand, and one of the reasons they're disenchanted with the U.S. is. The mercurial nature, the unreliable nature of presidents in terms of coming to their defense. We saw what Donald Trump did when they were attacked in 2019. Nothing. Uh, you know, we've seen what Joe Biden done. There, there's there's a general uh, you know belief that U.S. commitment to the region in terms of security has diminished considerably. So, so anyway, I you know I don't think Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has open eyes. They're looking at this. They're going, All right. Let's ask for this. See what happens. Um. So you have these three parties. Um, Saudi Arabia can't afford to play this card unless they know they're going to get what they ask for, and it's going to be – agreements are going to be honored and responsibly attended to. I mean, this is Saudi Arabia saying – in our position, as an extremely influential player in the Arab and Islamic worlds, we're going to put this on the table. And uh, I just don't see them doing that for what Israel is offering, which is essentially nothing, um, or even what Israel, if they offer something, what they're capable of doing. Likewise, U.S. I wonder if in the end it's really just a long play to loosen up restrictions on defense equipment and an understanding that Saudi Arabia is going to move ahead on the nuclear uh power sector and they'd really like U.S participation and let's find a way for to make this happen um but the the constant drumbeat of this is happening this is a real thing this is a possibility it defies logic to me. And that was one of the reasons I thought uh, Dr. Abdulaziz Agashayan's piece was so good. And this is several times where he's provided me personally insights on what's happening in this, this Saudi-Israel normal, normalization. Is that, you know, a, you know, a key pillar of their strategy is just to speculate constantly. And I think we all fall prey to it. So anyway, I thought, you know, th- there's, no, there's no conclusion to this one big thing it's really, you know, me trying to understand, you know, what the players are trying to do and why the players are doing what they're doing.
0: Richard, I don't have too much to add to that because I, like you, am pretty confused by it. And, you know, we, like you said, we've, we've been talking about it. We've had Aziz on the, Dr. Aziz on the show twice now trying to understand it. And he is, just so, not only is he great on the show, but his piece was terrific. And he's just very, I just, he sees it so much clearer, at, at least than I do. So it's like, and, and so this was good, Richard, because I think it's good to sort of walk through it and say, you know, what's what's happening here? Why is it so frequently discussed? It's like a story, you called it a drumbeat, just doesn't really go away. Tom Friedman of course a week ago wrote about it and you mentioned that he called this a long shot at best and you're right Richard what what's in it for the United States I mean if the United States wants a stronger relationship with Saudi Arabia it, it's not going to find it through Jerusalem there are many other ways to do it we've had Bilal Saab on the show talking about how you can strengthen U.S Saudi defense cooperation um there are ways to do that but brokering a, a deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel doesn't seem like All of a sudden, the U.S. has significantly more clout in the region and can now take on China. Just to me, that doesn't add up. Anyway, what's in it for Saudi Arabia? I think that's another great point that you made a lot less than there was five or six months ago when it normalized relations with Iran. Um, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're best buddies, but there's a lot less pressure there. There's not as much tailwind behind the drive to have an anti-Iran axis. I just, I agree with you. I don't see this happening. Of course, I said that it was very unlikely that Saudi Arabia and Iran's deal would stick and maybe it won't, but just didn't seem like this. Just doesn't seem like there's anything here. I mean, it's easy to say of course what Israel would get, Yeah. but I think Saudi Arabia, if they're playing this correctly and we can't really know, but, they should stick with their 2002 King Abdullah peace initiative and just say, this is what we presented then. This is what we think is fair. Now we can talk about it. I mean, you know, part of what that peace initiative is, is normalization with all these other countries. Of course, that has changed because the UAE and and others have now normalized with Israel. But I think that to me and everybody has an opinion on this, that was fair. Why would they go away from that? Why would they you know, diverge from that? What's in it for them? And I can't figure it out. And so I think that was a good this is good, Richard, because you hear about it, it's like and, and we get asked about it all the time. Hey, are they going to normalize relations? And I just I don't. Why would they why would Saudi Arabia do that? So I don't understand.
1: So this is good. Well, for the return that's on the table, 100 percent. I, I, and I agree I, that that's you know, when you when you, you see the speculation, constant speculation, you go, well, why? And, you know, you know, these things that, say, Saudi has put on the table, let's set aside a security pact. So clearly, they want a more assured security commitment from the U.S., um, you know, whether that's going to be uh, formalized in a, in a treaty or a, a, an alliance, that's highly unlikely. But things like, you know, better access to any quicker access to important uh, defense equipment. Help with the nuclear program. You, you can do this. You don't have to go through Israel. This is like this is like you're playing pool and, you know, there's a straight shot you can take or you can bounce it off two bumpers and try and make the shot. What's jump it over? Yeah, why yeah. would you why would you do this? Yeah. You know, and, you know, and, and, and I think that a lot of it has to do with the sway of Israel in Washington, D.C., you know it's it's an it's you know it's an important value to ally to us and it has a narrative that we we endorse uh and you know and we would love we've always loved its policy that we'd like to see as a resolution of the, of the occupation of the palestinian territories and it's uh you know maybe this knocks them out with all three it's and in my opinion is it's 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 too uh it, you know my opinion you know the simpler the better if you want better relations with saudi arabia go about it if you want israel to be uh to change its policy on occupied areas we have leverage with israel deal with israel directly again going back to the beginning you know the israelis as well as arabs in general are known to be tremendous negotiators you know there's a bizarre type thing here well we'll make a deal and uh I just think it's striking that you literally have the prime minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, is saying very specifically that with regard to the Abraham Accords, we got something for nothing. Uh, And I think, you know, it's in their best interest to keep trying to do that.
0: Yeah, and also, Richard, just also going back to the U.S., the US is, you mentioned this, and it's just an important point that it's not just one person saying, you know, it's not, there's no MBS in the U.S. saying, hey, we're going to do this deal, and this is the deal. It goes through Congress, and that, you know, that's obviously where it gets totally, I mean, that it's very likely to be derailed, but also, mm-hmm. if you just, oh, go
1: ahead, please. No, no, no. But it, it, and by the way, it's, it's Barbara Leaf, I okay. mean, it's the State Department, Joe Biden himself said this is a long shot and some of this is laughable. I mean, this is, you know, you, you know, there's, there's some of the stuff And Barbara Leaf in particular said, um, you know, some of the stuff coming out of Israel is just, you know, way over the top. So there's a recognition of it, but it doesn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just what I was going to
0: just add to that is essentially that point is. If anybody thinks that this is going to move any needle in the U.S. election that is coming up next year in 2024, they're completely off the rocker. I mean, yeah. you have basically 78 indictments against the former president, including rigging the election or messing with the election, and you still basically have no erosion in support for him in the Republican Party. The Israel-Saudi, uh, you know, a, a deal for Israel and Saudi, between Israel and Saudi Arabia is not going to change anyone's minds. I wonder how many people even know about it. I think yeah. it'd be interesting, and I also looked up Richard when we were talking about this. Um, if there are any Vegas odds or any like bookmaker <laughs> odds on this actually going down, there's nothing because it just doesn't really make a difference. Oh, well, or, you or know, to Vegas as so.
1: Vegas hadn't made book on this, then it's not real. Because exactly,
0: exactly right. I mean, maybe I didn't look deep enough. Vegas has odds on pretty much everything, which is super fun to look at. But um, I just, yeah, I mean, Richard, this is a good point because it's it's sort of like your one big thing is that this is a very big thing in terms of its outsized media coverage but it's actually not really a thing and probably won't be very unlikely to be but there are other things that are happening that are significant and could matter uh, the pool playing analogy is is perfect because it's there are really clear wins. and joe biden president biden um hinted at this he said well they They're talking, you know, and there are these little things that they're working out. doesn't seem like they hate each other too much. This isn't going to be some big thing. Just take the wins as they're there. Work with it. And then, you know, and then also, of course, Richard, and you mentioned, and I'm sorry to repeat for everybody, but the political situation in Israel is fairly dicey. It's not a
1: great time to be I mean, you who know. can't can't follow through on any of his promises right. with regard to the occupied territories. Yeah, 100 percent I think it'd be an interesting uh case study for somebody who's got, you know, uh serious chops in negotiating strategy. You know, you see Israel at the table go, hey, let's just throw this out, see if we can get something for nothing. And Saudi Arabia goes, Hey, well, what the heck? Let's ask for the moon, see what happens. We're not gonna do anything brash anyway and we're getting what we want in terms of you know a, a growing commercial relationship with israel um i just you know it, so here's the deal. you know you play poker you know poker and what's the old adage if you look around the table and you don't know who the sucker is you're the sucker exactly and i'm really worried that's where we are with the u.s <laughs> Uh, I just
0: could not agree with that more, Richard. And just I guess the final point that I want to make is that you know the the and you referenced it, but just the the unpopularity of Israel since the since the Abraham Accords were were signed in the UAE and I think it was Bahrain was the other opinion poll and that was the Washington Institute poll. There it, it isn't like this deal that those Abraham Accords were like they were like the greatest thing and people love
1: it. It just seems like people are <laughs> this, like, ah, eh, this is, you know. There's a popular, up, you know, upswell for let's 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 normalize with Israel. Keep it going, yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, most people are like, actually, this is not
0: that great. And then you have all of this, you know, ongoing. Really, it's not just the Israeli political situation, which was grabbing headlines big time last week um, regarding the constitutional change there. But yeah. the ongoing strife with the Palestinian people is just – You know, if you're an Arab, you're looking at that saying, I don't really, normalization with Israel isn't like the top priority for me right now, seeing all this stuff going. So anyway.
1: But it confirms the Israeli uh, take is let's try and get something for nothing. Right. And they got something, they've given nothing. Right. It's clear what they want out of this. But Yeah, exactly. Uh, and
0: of course everybody wants a defense pact with the United States. Ukraine wants one really badly. They want to be in NATO so badly because yeah. what well, you know, it's clear what that means. The world's most powerful military by far, one that has been weakened unfortunately a little bit in terms of public sentiment behind using it as a force for good because of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it is still preponderant. And yeah. any state should want to be our ally and have a mutual defense pact. Why wouldn't anyone want that? So of course people want that, but it's, and Saudi Arabia wants that. But if you're trying to be objective and you put yourself in the position of a US Senator from any state and, and are weighing this, and you think about it and you're like, what are, so if Iran attacks, attacks Saudi Arabia, we're, we're at war with Iran?
1: Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, anyway, so, Um. Yeah, Richard. You know, re- yeah, really. I, good. I, I love these because I, I literally, when I said I'm going to do one big thing on this, because mostly because I don't get it. What is what? Am, what am I missing? And then when we were talking before this, I was saying I don't, I don't know where I am on this. Um, it's it, and it's just so much fun to have the conversation. This is this is great. <laughs> this is
0: great. Well, so Richard, it's a, you make a good point, and it's a good time to sort of de- describe what we mean by this one big thing segment, right? Because we're we're doing this because we as people know, would basically be doing this anyway, uh, talking about right. these subjects, trying to figure it out. There's stuff that we're, the whole podcast is trying to understand the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, US-Saudi relations, Saudi Arabia's position in the world better than than we already do. Not completely understand it, because that's impossible. We're and not, we're not uh, Saudis. And we're not Saudis. We're just you know trying to do it. And we've had a tremendous amount of success with that as we pursue these topics. But Richard, as you know, it, this is not like we have some evening broadcast channel and these one big things they sort of have a feel of like a monologue at the beginning just so because you want to be able to dive into something right. and then we discuss it but we don't have a team of writers here that are making some editorial point and we just are delivering it it's us actually trying to figure out what's going on and then discussing it and so it's people are going to hear it. it's sort of the same big same thing with my one big thing coming up which is basically i didn't know where it was going and then When I got there, I was like, well, this isn't a point that I want to make. I got to walk this back and delete half of this (laughs) and then see if I can make something that makes sense. But it's I mean, that's we're just trying to understand stuff. And I'm glad you did this because this has been all over the media. It still is. And it's like doesn't really make sense. Maybe there's something we're missing that leads you to people like I mean, we we know him, obviously, but that leads you to to pieces from people like Dr. Aziz Al-Gashayan. Just, you know, and then, so you're like, oh, I get it a little bit better now, but yeah. maybe yeah. there's just nothing to get, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. uh, <laughs> That's my
1: concern. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so it's, it's good that people know that because it, you know, we're, we're, we're on a journey here, but there is no guarantee. Come along with us. <laughs> <laughs> so, with that as a as a uh, you know a foundation, <laughs> Richard, my one big thing this week: Saudi Arabia's economy <laughs> and a little update on where the kingdom is now. This podcast, Richard, is now old enough—ninety-seven it's 97 episodes in—to have covered and discussed the kingdom's economy when it was in a different place than it is right now, and. I think Richard, when you're discussing a country, and the focus for this podcast, the Nine Six Six, obviously Saudi Arabia, there's a lot to talk about. You can talk about the economy, society, culture, and sports. We do cover it all. Um, but you know, I think if you know one thing about Saudi Arabia from listening this pod, listening to this podcast, or just pretty much in general, or that if you should know one thing about Saudi Arabia, it is that it is in the middle of a total economic transformation of the economy away from oil, and that's really what is behind. Pretty much everything, sports, cultural changes. It's Vision 2030, and they're trying to change the ent- entire economy from being completely, you know, pretty much completely dependent on oil to not. And that's really it. That's it's as simple as that. And so we're right in the middle of that. And so I, I was gonna do an update, Richard, on Saudi Arabia's economy. Before we do that, i was sort of curious. We're talking about Vision 2030, launched in 2016, uh, April 25th. 2016 so we're seven years and three months into it and it's a 14-year plan it's not going to be completely done by 2030 many things will be completed or realized after 2030 but 2030 is the way in Richard when they're like all right how, how do we do let's take take a look at this that's a 14-year plan we're seven years and three months into it we're, we're just past halftime. we or in the second half of it and so I was thinking you know how, how is it doing? How do do you even evaluate it? We can't because we're going to wait till 2030, but you can see if things are happening and if things are trending in the right direction. Uh, So that's just, I feel like that's sort of like, and, and Richard, this is the fork in the road where I started going down on that. And I say, wait, I was going to talk about the economy, like in July, 2023. So um, I'll veer back in that direction just, but as a good sort of, uh, you know, give us some, some guardrails on this because, we have to keep in mind that what's going on in Saudi Arabia's economy today and what was happening last year and what will happen next year is all part of a larger plan, which doesn't exist everywhere on, in other countries, but it does in Saudi Arabia. Um, and Richard, so 2022 really strong year for Saudi Arabia's economy, you know, oil prices soared, resulting from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Saudi Arabia was the fastest growing G20 economy in 2022 overall growth reached 8.7% reflecting both strong oil production, but also a 4.8% non-oil GDP GDP growth driven by robust private consumption and non-oil private investment. Uh, it was a good year for king, the kingdom in many ways, but it wasn't all rosy. The PIF, as we discussed last week, reported an $11 billion loss for 2022 compared to a $19 billion gain in 2021. Though with global equities on the rebound, Richard, this year in 2023, it looks like they'll get some of that back. But anyway, 23 is not looking like the rosy year for the kingdom. And in fact, it looks like a tougher year for the kingdom's economy. This is because of oil again. This month, the kingdom got the largest growth downgrade among major economies from the IMF. But Richard, there's a lot to like in all the recent data that came out. We have all the data from the first half of the year. And we actually also have some data from now July, 2023 but I'm going to discuss kind of the bad news first, because I think it makes sense in the story of Vision 2030 and then the good news. So bad news first. Um, latest data show that Saudi Arabia has now entered a technical recession. This is according to a recent report from Capital Economics, which was based on data from GA Stat, which is a, a very good statistical organization for Saudi Arabia. It's really just the government data that comes out of that that people then use to you know, enter into models and, and make forecasts and analyze the Saudi economy. Data show that real GDP in Saudi Arabia increased by 1.1% during the second quarter of 2023 compared to the same period of last year. However, oil activities decreased by 4.2% compared to the same period of that year. The results also demonstrated that the seasonally adjusted real GDP declined by 0.01% during the second quarter of 2023 compared to the first quarter. So that's the recession they're sort of talking about. With oil cuts likely to continue, and Richard, we actually know today just came out, they will continue through September, they just agreed to that. The Saudi economy is likely to experience a contraction for the entire year, the report said, and could result in the worst GDP performance in over two decades for the kingdom, excluding, of course, the impact of the global financial crisis and the pandemic. So more data out, Richard, showed the kingdom's budget deficit widening. In the second quarter, as the government raised spending on social benefits and projects meant to diversify the economy, government income rose, driven mainly by higher non-oil revenue. I'll get to that in a second, that's a good part. I kind of slipped it in there, which uh, Crown Prince MBS is still trying to grow as he looks to end the boom bust oil cycles impact on the economy. Still, the government's deficit came in at 5.3 billion rials, which is $1.4 billion, around 80% higher than that for the first quarter. Just last bit on the more concerning side for the kingdom's economy. Uh, before we get to some of the good news, a key gauge of borrowing costs in Saudi Arabia has risen to a record. The cost of money as measured by the three month Saudi interbank offered rate rate cybor climbed above 6% this week, even higher than it was during the 2008 global financial crisis. And after oil prices collapsed in 2020, the rate was below 1% only 18 months ago its rise has come as the u.s federal reserve has hiked interest rates to lower inflation with its latest move of 25 basis points coming last week so there's some concerning stuff there richard essentially you know with these moves that saudi arabia has made on the oil front to prop up prices it's kind of expensive but the good news richard and there's this is actually fairly significant if you put it in the context of vision 2030 in the same period we've been discussing, the second quarter of 2023, the non-oil economy grew by 5.5% compared to the same period of last year in 2022. Now, since that report was released earlier this week, Richard, and again, as I mentioned, this was sort of like an avalanche of reports We're trying to put it all together. Um, we've also seen figures from July, non-oil business activity in Saudi Arabia did ease a little bit in July after output after output surged to multi-year highs the previous month the seasonally adjusted Riyadh Bank Saudi Arabia Purchasing Managers Index eased to 57.7% in July, it's down from 59.6% in June. Uh, that's the lowest since December 2022. 22, 22, excuse me. Although it remained above the long-run average, of course, anything above 50 is expansion. So that's still good news, even if there's a bit of an easing. Back to the Bloomberg item on the government budget. The good news in there: 12% increase in revenues, outpaced by a 13% rise in expenditure. So they're spending more than they're taking in, but that is largely due to a doubling of social benefits and a jump in capital expenditure. Non-oil revenue jumped 32% to 135 billion reals, according to a budget report from the Ministry of Finance published on Thursday. Oil income increased 0.6% to 180 billion reals during the quarter, but fell 28% year in year. So look, here we are, Richard, halfway through Vision 2030, just got out of the locker room we're heading back in for the second half and you're looking at the economy is <laughs> still pretty dependent on oil I think that's fair but you also see so much progress in changing that you see these non-oil GDP figures staying solid um and you know of course if you could get into it that's only part of the story but we should keep in mind the goal is reduction of dependence on oil not the elimination of it strengthening the non-oil sector has been crucial for saudi arabia and that's really just vision 2030 in a nutshell you have these other things that they have they are looking to improve the quality of life provide um you know more opportunity for women there's a a bunch of things that they're trying to do but really the diversification of the economy is key um and then Richard just on this the PMI report further pointed out that I just referenced that survey respondents were upbeat on long term business expansion plans and subsequent efforts to boost operating capacity in July. This optimism this is according to Arab news uh, which which ran the, the survey This optimism resulted in a rise in employment numbers for the 16th month in a row, although the pace of hiring was the weakest since November 2022. Um, so yeah so what we see here richard just stepping back we see the progress on the oil economy nurturing it to a point where it continues to contribute more and more and we're seeing it being quite resilient we're seeing that after the uh global pandemic we're seeing it you know now despite oil prices going down a little bit so they have a strategy in saudi arabia they're implementing it the game is not over we're going to see these ups and downs in the in the economy um but what we're seeing is i think in, in my opinion, definitive progress in the development of the non-all economy. I mean, you, and we're not even really there yet in terms of having the tourism sector fully operational and having all these goals realized we have seven more years to get there until we really take a look at it and say, Hey, how did it go? Um, but yeah, see Richard, and that's my one big thing, but see Richard, <laughs> we're, we get into this thing and we kind of understand it. And then, and then we go down other rabbit holes and we're like, we got to, try to write the ship here a little bit, but it's just <laughs> interesting what you see in the Saudi economy today. You see uh, oil still very important,
1: critically important,
0: but you also see progress in making it less important for the Saudi economy. And you can see that in the non-OIL GDP figures.
1: I, that's a good one. And it's an important one too. And it, I think it puts you put your finger on some key things because <clears throat> on this show, I think I've used the term. I've seen, you know, Saudi Arabia's having a moment. 2022 was a moment. I mean, the the, the you know oil revenue was insane. The 8.7 GDP growth. You know, obviously G20 leading. I mean, it's, you know, sort of win to win to win. And we know that that's not going to happen. Not going to sustain. You're going to have downturns. And, and, uh, you know, we see Saudi Arabia significantly curtailing its production and trying to prop up oil prices. I think intense anticipation of of China and the global economy coming back strong towards the end of the year. I think that's their read. Um, so they're taking it on the chin now and it, it does translate into the, into the budget, into, into that sort of thing, because as you say, you know, oil is still preponderant. Um, how, you know, the, the, the dynamism of the non-oil sector is really encouraging and you're exactly right. You know, when, you know, one of the main pillars of FIS in 2030 is, is thriving economy and a big aspect of that is the non-oil economy and diversification. So it's good to see that continue, even though oil revenues are down. Um, I also think, you know, you talked about a strategy and it, And one of the things Saudi Arabia has done better uh, under Vision 2030 is become more transparent in terms of its intended, its budget and its intended spending. Mm -hmm. And I think that really, in terms of messaging and sentiment, is critical in times like this, where, okay, we got, you know, general revenue is down, we're running a deficit, but uh, the government has made it clear we're still heavily investing and and capital expenditure and 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 infrastructure and these giga projects i mean they're they're still investing strongly they're maintaining it i hope you know and i'm sure that you know i don't know what the commitment is but let's say this let's say you know oil continues to sputter it's not sputtering it's about mid 80s right now but you know, falls down or whatever, it doesn't recover as as projected. Uh, you know, will Saudi Arabia continue to deficit spend in order to to support the private sector? Because really, you know, the private sector still relies on it considerably. I mean, uh, and and you know, Saudi Arabia is trying to improve the private sector through a number of things: regulatory reform, you know, private investment, the PIF and government spending is a is a tremendously important engine in the private sector you know buying into key sectors and promoting uh sectors they think we're going to you know should be uh, you know looking to privatize looking to invest and then privatize so i mean the 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 government you know needs to keep spending for the non-oil economy to keep growing uh and it's committed to doing that and we'll see again if this goes on in terms of overall revenues to the state if they continue to do that or if they pull back and what the sentiment on all this will be but this is exactly what we've talked about when we say saudi arabia's having a moment the, the, you know the test is not when you're in the moment the test is when the moment's gone and and i i personally think they're going to be going to you know stay the course keep investing you you mentioned an important thing, and that's the cost of money. And you know, even even when Saudi Arabia didn't have huge revenues, they could fairly they could get uh, bonds and and loans at for cheap because the cost of money was not high. It, it you know when you're paying debt or you're looking out for new funds, and the cost of money is what it is now. That's that's a disincentive. So it'll be interesting to see what their their options and the options they take. You know, they, maybe they won't go to the markets for money, but they'll just keep spending down and and run a budget deficit. But again, these decisions are critical, and, and you know, as you point out, we're halfway between here and, uh, the, you know, 2016 and 2030. And a lot of what happens right now, well, a lot of what happens in the next 6 to 12 months will determine where they are in 2030. If they can get through this, keep the momentum, keep – uh, the non oil and diversification sectors of their economy growing and optimistic, willing to invest, uh, confidence level high, uh, then that's a, a big win. And I, you made me laugh when you said bad news, good news. My my middle son, Sam, always, when he comes to me, says, Dad, I've got, got good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? And he knows I always want to hear the bad news first because you want to finish on the good news. Of course, yeah. But yes, I like I like your I like your sequencing. We do the same thing at the Wilson household, too.
0: Well, it's interesting because, you know, we just discussed this, Richard, it's a mixed picture. But the good news is really the more important news in the long run. And the other thing that's interesting, Richard, about this is this is all because of a Saudi strategy on propping up oil prices as we we both mentioned and discussed. It looks like some are predicting for their strategy to work. For example, Goldman Sachs saying that demand will reach an all-time high. Um, you know, some some shale. I saw some shale CEOs in the U.S. predicting that it'll be sustained at about hundred dollars a barrel, at least on the West Texas Intermediate next year. So, look, I mean, you know, and, and I actually don't know how this works. Like, if Saudi Arabia were to say, actually, you know what, we changed our mind. We're going to pump twelve million barrels a day and flood the market would they make less money overall if the price goes down like it, it all depends on how many you're selling and and what the price is per barrel right uh, and there's buyers so there's a strategy here that and, they're pursuing but maybe it you know maybe it works and maybe it doesn't yeah, yes.
1: but that's also the problem and I'm not an expert but I mean there's all that Russian discounted oil out there you're not right, going to undercut right. that that's already selling at a deep discount right I mean, it's, you know, Russia's Russia's situation is is becoming a problem for Saudi Arabia, not only because they're not really hitting their production quotas in terms of cutting back, but also, I mean, when, when, you know, China and India can get cheap Russian fuel, how how do you compete with that? Right, right. And Saudi Arabia is
0: importing a lot of Russian fuel itself as well uh, to meet its own domestic needs. So anyway, interesting kind of look at the Saudi economy. Richard, last year it was just full steam ahead and that was that was a moment they're still kind of having a moment in a lot of respects but it's when times are really good and times are really bad that you sort of learn about where you are and who you are and i think saudi arabia has not adjusted other than you know modifying for the better some of the targets and kpis of vision 2030 to be more realistic and more impactful but the overall vision is exactly as it was in 2016 and it should stay that way until 2030 and then you reevaluate. But anyway, Richard, this is just, you know, it's super interesting. So, uh,
1: you know, we look at the leaders. These are, these are moments, you know, there are moments, periods, eras, whatever that uh, bind uh, people to its government. And by that, I mean, either, you know, they, they become uh, less confident or more confident, you know, the, the, the regimes, the Saudi government's performance during COVID clearly won the confidence and support of the Saudi population. It, it was responsible, decisive, and as it turned out to be very effective. You know, that's a big confidence builder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what the government does here in uh, this, you know, this uh, these economic headwinds, uh, again, is another opportunity to show leadership and to sort of just, you know, reinforce and affirm uh the population's confidence in in the direction of the country you know you know if 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 you know you turn tail at the first difficulty and say oh we're you know we're contracting spending and we're we're not gonna we're gonna we're gonna you' know, gonna you know slow down the timetables on all these projects you know that would just crush sentiment yeah uh if you can get through this with everybody believing we're headed and pulling in the same direction the government's been transparent they've been consistent in their messaging um again, it, it you know, socially, politically, it it really enhances the government's stature, if you ask me. Yep. Agreed. And Richard,
0: I think now is a great time and yes. an interesting segue as well to get to our conversation with Karen Elliott House because we do talk with her a little bit about the her recent paper for the Belfer Center on Saudi First. And I think this is, fits into that pretty neatly. Um, and she's just um, obviously brilliant and, and incredibly accomplished. So enjoy. We are pleased to welcome on to the 966 American journalist, author, media executive, and Pulitzer Prize winner, Karen Elliott House. Karen has served as publisher at The Wall Street Journal, former senior vice president of Dow Jones. She's currently a senior fellow at the Belfer Center for International Affairs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and on the board of the RAND Corporation. She was awarded the pulitzer prize for her coverage of the middle east while a reporter with the wall street journal in addition to writing a series of articles on saudi arabia for the journal in 2007 karen is author of the book on saudi arabia its people past religion fault lines and future recently she has written several opinion and commentary pieces for the wall street journal on saudi arabia and the u.s saudi relationship and her most recent work is an in-depth paper on saudi national priorities for the belfer center Entitled "Saudi First Kingdom Pursues Independent Path," Karen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Nine Six Six. Welcome.
2: Thank you.
1: Yes, uh, echoing Lucian's introduction, it's actually a great disservice to your depth of experience on Saudi Arabia to just be constrained to one episode. Um, so we'll we'll do our best. I want to I want to make a point on because Lucian's last note was he he mentioned the Belfer Center papers you've written. And I think they're a tremendous resource and and, and, and folks should find them because it, interestingly enough, uh, your first in this series, Uneasy Lies the Head That Wears a Crown, came out April 2016, which was the month that Vision 2030 was launched. Mm-hmm. um then june 27 saudi arabian tra- tra- transition from de- defense to offense and then uh in 2019 profile of the prince uh which is a examination of mohammed bin salman these are really i think it's safe to say no other us based scholar uh has such an extensive record of engagement in saudi arabia and uh, so th- uh, thank you for joining us and we don't want to spend too much time on it but let's 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 sort of start at the first key takeaway of your last paper, your most recent paper Saudi first and that first key takeaway is Vision 2023 has transformed the kingdom since it launched in 2016 can can let's just push play and and we'd be interested to know your have your take on this
2: well it has come it has transformed the kingdom totally, culturally, not yet economically. But as someone who started going there in 1978, um, and then and didn't wear an abaya because you could walk around, as the Crown Prince says, uh, you know it was a normal country, not like America. But I went around in a skirt that came to my knees and a long sleeve blouse, and then came the the religiosity period after the fall of the shah in iran and i donned my black abaya like everyone else i didn't cover my head unless ordered to by the religious police or a judge both of which happened to me um but from all of that from women being not seen and not heard um they have they are now seen heard Working, driving, um, being completely productive—critical uh, employees uh, of the state. They are, I believe, the people who will change the economy over time.
1: And that's actually one of the things. Uh, it actually comes out of your 2019 piece, profile of Prince. One of the one of the uh, sections was, amid sweeping social change, women are the winners. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you expand on that because uh, and as you say you 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 just suggested they'll be the drivers of change
2: yeah well he uh he says um i uh, something to the effect of i i support saudi arabia and half of saudi arabia is women so i support women i mean he views them as full citizens in the Enterprise of transforming the country and its economy. And so, you know, under him, um, they have been able to, uh, as time has gone by from the, these six years of, that he's been in charge, you know, you see more and more women. Uh, without black abayas, I mean, abayas are now a fashion statement, not a religious, you know, um, wrapping. So you see women in beautiful, uh, stylish, pastel colors, you know, which would have landed you in um, the religious police headquarters um, 10 years ago. Um, But it's not just that they they can dress the way they want to. They are now allowed to travel to exit the country without their husband or any other male approval. And in the past, if a woman tried to exit the country, the the uh, passport control people notified the man. Uh, even if he had already approved, he got notified uh, because they didn't want a single woman to escape her her husband, her father's um, total control. Um, so it's, a, it's the liberation. And then obviously, as a, a woman told me uh, in 2018, when women began to drive, being able to drive is not just about driving a car. It's about freedom of choice. And uh, the interesting thing to me uh, in Saudi Arabia is that women did not, Unlike I'm old enough to have been part of the cutting edge of women, you know, entering the workforce in the U.S. big time in the uh, 70s. There was no Gloria Steinem and there was no bra burning in uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, women just simply, uh, once the, the prince offered the opportunities, stepped up and uh, and took them, because they were actually prepared educationally Um, in the years when the kingdom was so consumed with religiosity. Men studied Islam in, uh, they were forced to study it in uh, elementary school and high school and after school, and many of them studied it in universities, so they had no useful skill. Um, And they went to work for the government, uh, lifetime employment with a degree in Islamic studies, which qualified you for nothing unless you were going to go on and become a true Islamic scholar. So women were had to study something. They weren't allowed to, you know, become Islamic uh, scholars because they were women So they had skills, um, and when given the opportunity, they were able to take the jobs and run with them. And every man you talk to in the kingdom these days, whether government or business, says they would rather hire women because not only are they better educated, they're much more motivated.
1: We have... We've discussed on this show the very marked diplomatic difference in Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman since January 2021, which is the Aululu declaration and essentially a sort of a, a, a changing time where diplomacy was seemed to be one way before that and considerably different after that. This paper that you that you've done, you've written Saudi first is based on, on four trips to Saudi Arabia in October, 2019, October, 2021, March, 2022, and March, 2023. So you're very current. And it 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 is entitled Saudi first for a reason. And if I can, I'll, 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 I'll we'll take a quote from it because there's, there, by the way, there's, there's, I can't recommend this paper uh, enough. I mean, it's so much uh, good commentary and analysis in it. Um, but the quote, what you say, you know, uh, on this, the author's latest visit to Saudi Arabia, so it was sort of March 2023, mm-hmm. and meetings with most senior leadership is that the crown prince doesn't much care what Americans naysayers think. He is laser focused on one thing, building an economically powerful nation that he believes in a few decades could catapult into the top 10 economies in the world. So can you elaborate on the Saudi first
2: title? Uh Saudi first, uh, I believe, in the kingdom means focusing on what's in Saudi Arabia's interest, not the U.S. interest, not anyone else's interest. So after decades of Saudi Arabia largely seeking to accommodate um, American presidents, I mean, there were lots of tensions before um, before Joe Biden called them a pariah. But um they were they saw themselves as uh, trusting largely the U.S to protect them and needing the U.S to protect them. Since Obama's presidency, followed by Trump and now especially Joe Biden, they simply don't believe the U.S has their best interests at heart and they don't believe that the Americans will be there to protect them if if they need it. So it is the reason, I believe, that they have reached out and tried to improve their relationship with Iran, why they have definitely um, reached out to China. I mean, China is their biggest uh, m- market for o- their oil sales, but it's not just that. They see China as a, as a useful um, shield. Uh, and partner. It's not as useful, obviously, as they wish because the Chinese sell arms to the Iranians. And when the Saudis complain about it, the Chinese just say, we'll sell you anything you want. <laughs> well, of course, they don't want more more uh, weaponry necessarily all over the Middle East. They would like peace because for, for Prince Mohammed, He is almost certainly going to be king when his very elderly father dies. And he's 37 now. He can rule for another half century. So unlike all previous Saudi rulers, he can't just kick the can down the road and, you know, not really care whether what he says and does produces any results because he's going to be there to be held accountable when the results come or don't come. And the main result he's gonna get measured on is the economic uh, transformation. Um, There's lots of time to do it because oil is definitely going to continue to be used by the world far beyond the date the Greens wish it would end um but he's got to take the steps that truly create a sustainable economy without oil revenue i mean if you look at um you, you all the um saudi us uh, report that you put out daily today it talks about the um saudi the IMF reducing Saudi uh, economic growth projections for 2023 to 1.9%. That's versus 8.7% last year. And the reason they cite for that is the Saudis have cut oil production to try to prop up the price. So oil prices have a huge impact on their economic growth still, and that's one of the things he's trying to transit from. So again, Saudi first is him looking after reforming the economy and protecting the trillions of dollars they're spending on that from being blown up by Iran or any other potential enemy. I mean, it's a nightmarish job i i don't envy him the i don't know how he sleeps at night actually if you think about living in such a nasty neighborhood and investing it's you know like somebody in a bad uh, neighborhood in america building a 50 million dollar 50 billion dollar house and you know knowing that somebody could torch it one night You know, it's 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 a difficult uh, thing to put your mind around. He doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to bother him, but it would me. I'm sure it
1: weighs on his mind. And by the way, you know, you talk about the urgency that the crown prince feels and many in Saudi Arabia. I think the profile of a prince was a very interesting uh, paper on trying to understand understanding sort of the the, what went into making Mohammed bin Salman. Mm and you know, why he is sort of on a mission in a hurry. Uh, it's an interesting read. Um, I also think it's fascinating as you mentioned that because one, one of the curious things to us, I think, watching Saudi Arabia and looking at it every day sort of on a granular, granular level is uh, the diplomacy is Saudi first, but it's also very regionally uh, attuned recognizing what you just talked about is basically we we need to pull the whole region along because uh, instability surrounding us uh, mm-hmm. threatens us. And I think it's interesting in their foreign aid now, you know, whereas before it was uh, sort of, you know, open-handed large S and, you know, here give it to, you
2: mm-hmm. know,
1: a, a figure or whomever now is now tied increasingly to real serious economic reform. Uh, because they they want to see these neighboring countries um not you know just collapse into instability I think that's probably a reason why they you know they have brought Syria back into the Arab League but speaking of of you know Saudi first really interesting and very sort of bald comment as you make in 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 the paper is is very simple it says disputes are not new what is new is the way they are being handled
2: mm-hmm Yeah, as I said earlier, uh, there have been tensions in the U.S.-Saudi relationship since the beginning. I mean, when Franklin Roosevelt went there and met with uh, Ibn Saud, Ibn Saud's big message to him was, don't give the Jews Palestine. Um, Roosevelt came home and died, and his his vice president became president and supported uh, the Jewish state in Palestine. That was obviously a source of tension in the uh, U.S.-Saudi relationship. Um, The clear high point of the relationship was when the U.S. sent 500,000 troops to Saudi Arabia in 1990 to protect its oil from Saddam Hussein, who had already invaded Kuwait and uh, had ambitions to uh, invade Saudi Arabia. Um, But it. The that these tensions were always kind of quietly handled. Um, a letter from King Abdullah to George W. Bush saying you shouldn't have invaded Iraq. You know you're gonna hurt our country, but not you know uh, big headlines and ministers uh, condemning the U.S. or the American president condemning. Saudi Arabia for not supporting the invasion of Iraq. It was all much quieter. And now uh, Biden has taken the decibel level to a vast uh, uh, high uh, with all of the talk about Pariah. And of course, he then wound up having to, if you will, eat his own words and go Humbly, they're seeking more oil to help the Democrats during the 2022 election. And the crown prince just said no. Um,
1: what does Riyadh want with the relationship? If, as you say, they they have serious doubts about uh, America's willingness to come to, to Saudi Arabia's aid in time of crisis. And you pointed out, you referenced Obama, and you're talking about the 2012 Syrian chemical weapons use. And then, of course, in 2019, when the Iranians hit some key uh, energy processing facilities. Uh, what do the Saudis want now?
2: I mean, what they want is uh, is a real security relationship with the United States. They just don't think they can get it. But as you know, um, there are all of these conversations uh said to be going on again between Biden and his uh, national security advisor and his secretary of state and the Saudis and Israelis about um, um, Israeli-Saudi diplomatic relations. All of the um, relations between Israel and an Arab country have basically been bought by America. Um, When the Egyptian-Israeli peace was done, we paid Egypt, and we then also gave uh, money to Israel, and the same when the Jordanians signed a peace. So what the Saudis are basically saying, they don't really want our money. What they're saying is, we need you to sign a real security commitment to Saudi Arabia We need to be a real security partner like NATO, something that you can count on. And we need um, certainty of arms shipments because the Congress changes from year to year. And, you know, one Congress is what sells them something and the other one withholds it. Um, And they are just saying we can't run a. Um, because they're trying to make their own military much more useful. The mili- the Saudi military has traditionally been just an employment service. You know, people have a job in the military. They're not really expected to have to do anything. Uh, that's a bit harsh on my part, but that's fundamentally um, accurate. And now MBS and his brother, who's the defense minister, want to, a military that actually can function, so they need reliable uh, arms. Right now, they're extremely dependent on the U.S. because most everything they have is American um, made. But if they could get that kind of commitment, and I don't see how they can, because I don't believe, and I don't, I don't, I don't know why they would believe a U.S. Congress frankly that even if it approved a a, a treaty and and, a, and promised to guarantee the weapons, the next Congress may not. So maybe there's some scheme that the U.S can come up with that reassures them. I personally um, doubt it, but that is a, that is what they want. I don't believe they believe they're going to get it.
1: I think that's an interesting way to put it. It it they you know they're clear-eyed on this. Um, and I think they've been uh much more forceful in 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 saying this is what we want, this is what we like, recognizing that getting the, you know, 60 votes are getting ratified in Congress is unlikely. Uh, they do really want the US to make uh appropriate accommodations for them to uh build a, a domestic nuclear mm-hmm. uh Energy system, you know, they want to build sixteen nuclear reactors. They want to enrich hydrogen. They'd like to be able to export it, uh, and I, I, I think that would that's in there. I wonder if that's not the really the thing they really want.
2: I think that's the thing they think they might be able to get. All
1: right.
2: That they want it, but they also think I believe that they might be able to get it because, you know, what they're saying is. We want to enrich our uranium. We don't want to, you know, we have a considerable um, quantity of uranium in our ground. We don't want to sell a bunch of dirt with uranium in it. We want to enrich that uranium and use it in our reactors and sell it to other people. Um, I mean, France uh, has nuclear reactors, Um so they would like to they would like to have that uh, capability. Um, you know, we uh, approved India uh, producing uh, uh, having a similar program and they produced a bomb with the um, uh, uranium. Um, the Saudis are saying y- y- the Americans can deal with. Can manage this inside the kingdom. Uh, we're not trying to build a nuclear weapon. Um, whether Congress will buy that, I think my judgment is they have a better chance of getting Congress to approve that. And again, once once you have once things are going, it's uh, it, it's harder to pull that back because they're enriching the uranium and uh and it's on their soil and it's theirs um so i think they have i'm repeating myself a higher chance of getting yeah. that out of the congress than the other than a security arrangement or guaranteed uh, weaponry
1: you have one of the sections uh in this Saudi first paper is on the development of a a local military capability in terms of production. But before we get there, uh, I wanted to, you have a really striking comment about normalization with Israel. Mm -hmm. And it speaks to the crown prince, and it also speaks to Saudi Arabia's uh, perception of itself in the uh, Islamic world. And you say, because the crown prince is vividly aware of leading, not following, he tells those close to them he will not follow tiny Bahrain, the UAE, Morocco, and Sudan, and joining the Abraham Accords and recognizing Israel. Instead, Saudi normalization with Israel would be a new initiative by the crown prince intended to pave the way for other major Islamic nations like Indonesia and Malaysia. I thought that was fascinating because that's a real insight of
2: where he sees Saudi Arabia in the world. Yeah, I think, you know, he... He sees himself, he sees the kingdom of Saudi Arabia not in, it's in the same geography as the Gulf countries, but it's really on a completely different plane in his mind than all of those little countries, Bahrain, UAE, uh, Qatar. Um, And he sees Saudi Arabia as the bridge between the world and the Middle East, and the Middle East bridge to the world. Um, So that's what I mean by, uh, and to the Islamic world. uh, So as you know, I think uh, his relationship with the UAE has become very strained because uh, MBZ, uh, as the uh, UAE ruler is known was one of his mentors, um, and MBZ now sees his pupil uh, outdoing him in a, in a, in many things, and not not willing to follow, uh, but expecting to lead. Mm. Um, so that uh, that tension uh, is growing. But I think if he if he could get um, that it, he wants to validate Saudi Arabia's leadership, not just of the Arab uh, uh, world, but the Islamic world. Mm-hmm. So as you pointed out earlier, I mean, he start he began his reign, frankly, by offending almost everybody in the Middle East and. Um, you know, breaking relations with Qatar, invading uh, Yemen, um, having terrible relations with uh, Turkey after the Khashoggi murder and their isolation and um, leaking uh, details, um, and uh, um, and cutting off uh, Syria and then uh, forcing the Lebanese prime minister to... Um, uh retire. Um <laughs> and you know now he is doing the opposite. I mean on everything they've restored relations with Qatar, they've added Syria back into the Arab League, um improved things uh, a bit with um Lebanon. Um but You know, he is, he's very much trying to calm down the region, improve things uh, with Iran. And I find it ironic that actually now his greatest tension in some ways is with um, the UAE um, because of the competition between the UAE and Saudi Arabia for tourism, for sports events, for um, everything,
1: Yeah, that's, 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 that is that's very interesting. You mentioned <clears throat> uh, one of the sections in Saudi First is on essentially military capability and competence. And you point out that Saudi Arabia has the third largest defense budget in the world, yet its military capability is ranked 22nd by Global Firepower, an independent group. Mm-hmm. Um, Iran, which spends, as you say, less than half, is ranked 17th. Uh, this is a priority for for uh, Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, how are they doing in this regard?
2: I I think it's it, it's only in my view only just beginning. I mean, um, they <clears throat> they are trying to build um, a lot of just useful uh, military hardware, as we're finding out in Ukraine it's not the sophistication of the weaponry that matters in that case. It's the the supplies, the number. And uh, that's part of what, I mean, Saudi Arabia has sophisticated American aircraft and, you know, Patriot defense, uh, missile defense, et cetera. But you know what they might may need if iran attacks them with scores hundreds of drones just cheap drones that they're um building um and selling to russia to to use in ukraine um you know it what will be necessary is much more um simple weaponry so they are trying to do what they can do uh, to build uh a a defense industry that would allow them not only to supply themselves with some things but also to sell them um to for hard currency earnings to other um militaries that need need quantity more than sophistication
1: you had um you you really interesting section in this in saudi first paper on the workforce essentially you were saying uh foreign workers are needed to fill the workforce gap and as as you're aware bin Salman has some very ambitious population goals he'd like to see the country reach 50 million by 2040 mm-hmm. i believe um uh they just had their 20 their most latest census come out there's 32 million Mm-hmm. In Saudi Arabia, about forty percent of the foreign nationals. Um, if I can make one more connection and plug the Sufistic Review, one of the one of the one of the uh, articles we cited today was that Saudi Arabia is one of the most attractive uh, places Oops. for uh, expats looking for jobs because the pay is so high because they're trying to attract so many. But you 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 say the foreign workers are going to be needed to to, to reach their goals. Can you expand on that a little?
2: Well, they simply don't have the educated population. Uh, they have some very well-educated people and some incredibly impressive people, but after, you know, basically not making education a priority for thirty years, um, they uh, they need vastly more um, educated. People to achieve that. he's not just looking for somebody that can push paper. He wants to be a cutting-edge technological country. Those kind of people don't exist without uh, uh, some educational preparation. Um, and I mean there they there are some in Saudi Arabia. I know a woman with a PhD in artificial intelligence from Columbia University. Um, you know, so it's not that they don't have any of these people, but they don't have nearly enough. So they need a lot of um, highly educated expats. Many of the expats, as you know, who are in the country are, as I believe the survey you cited there, the, um, are from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh. They are more low-wage um, low, low wage, um Workers um, and he needs the high wage, um, sophisticated, educated uh, workers. And while that survey uh, you cited talks about the high wages, um, they have not had the success they need in attracting those people. And one of the things that interests me is, you know, whether. Um, I mean, the country is vastly freer now um, socially. I mean, there's still no alcohol and there is still no, allegedly, no religious services other than uh, uh, mosques. Although I've been to a religious service in um, a Christian service in Saudi Arabia. Um, (laughs) um, So... But the things that Westerners want, um, and especially the ability to speak, I mean, the, the, the controls on political, um, discussion and the fact that, you know, somebody can just say something that they don't actually mean in a negative way, but, you know, wind up in, um, in real trouble, um, I think some of that probably unnerves Westerners. So, you know, whether he can get the quality of people, the quality and quantity he needs without a little bit of uh, loosening up on the political discussion front is, to me, uh, an open question going forward. It's been it's something we've
1: talked about in the 966. Um the great urgency and obviously there's significant metrics that are put out there with you know the vision 2030 and and there's been progress in different megawatts, and a lot of the uh regulatory environment has been redone legal environment is being mm-hmm. redone but you can't hurry education mm-hmm. you know you've got a generation's worth that you you know and that's that's what they're they're, they're late to start on they they're trying to clean up a lot of their curriculum in schools it's been really fascinating because we're big fans of the uh scholarship program it's fascinating how they've refined that to target more mm-hmm. uh, stem and and they, you know in in areas and disciplines they think they really need but again but you you can't sort of throw a bunch of money at it and make it happen sooner than a generation
2: will allow yeah I think uh you know there was a lot of when I was doing my book and spending intense time there between 2000. Six and uh, 12. Um, You know, there was a lot of talk then of education and King Abdullah created the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology uh, to invite the best and the brightest from around the world to go to university there in hopes of providing an example to their university system to get it to actually use inquiry as opposed to, um, the stuffed goose model <laughs> of, uh, of, uh, learning and they changed the books, but it, you know, it really takes as, as the, what the deputy minister of education told me then, you know, what happens inside the classroom when the teacher shuts the door, we don't have any control over. And that's clearly incredibly, um, true. Um, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in focusing on more is what is actually happening now these days, you know, a decade after I visited a lot of universities and high schools, et cetera, what is going on in the um in the classroom. Uh and those days I visited a high school, a girls' high school, and um This was a good one in the vicinity of King Siowood University, so had a lot of professors, uh, kids in it. And um, the class had been given an assignment to um, do a presentation about having a meal. So these three girls got up in front of the class, and they were reading from their transcript. And um, one of them said, And when you serve wine, the put the glass on, (laughs) and that obviously read this on the um, Internet or in some book. And then I looked at the superintendent and she looked at me and, you know, because hearing them talk about serving wine and the English teacher who was the teacher in the class looked at both of us like they're speaking great English. What am I supposed to do? I mean, it was a really um, a really funny uh, moment. One of those things you, you, if you don't go in the classroom, you don't see uh, that kind of uh, thing. But anyway, I would like to go in some classrooms again um, because it does take it does take a long time. And again, that's why I keep coming back to women are so important because. They are educated and their parents are now um, willing to let them work. I mean, there's so much of the the uh, keeping women hidden was because if your neighbor's daughter is not working, you don't, you know, it's, you don't, it would be shameful for you to flout convention and allow your daughter um, to work, so... I met a young woman in jazan down on the Yemen border and she was working um, in an airport, but she was going to um, nursing school. And she said her sister had wanted to be a nurse, but the family said, absolutely no. And she's four years younger. So hmm. they said to her, OK, you can do it. Um, you know, the the mores have changed. Um quite quickly. So hopefully with the government focusing, as you said, no longer providing scholarships to everybody for whatever university they can get into and whatever subject they want, but focusing on providing scholarships for the um, important uh, STEM requirements that they need will help them, but it will take time. I think he understands this totally. I mean, it's Changing the economy will take time, even if you had educated people at the ready, but they don't. So it's one of the reasons you see so many, you know, giga projects to do this and to do that um, early in the, the uh, 17, 2017 18, et cetera, um, is it keeps, it's marketing. It keeps people believing that, Modernity is coming, and it's big time, um, and it mesmerizes the the uh, young people with that uh, vision. Um, and I'm fond of quoting Napoleon said, "The people who change the world are not those that, you know, uh, work with the elite, but those that uh, move the masses." Mm. And I think MBS totally believes that that he has to move the masses, and the masses are the young so he has to keep them engaged he has to keep them moving forward and he he's under no illusions i think he knows that this is a time consuming um process and he he knows how to provide bread and circuses as the romans would say how to distract people until you have you know gotten them um to where they need to be.
1: That's a fascinating observation and it it reflects I think a lot of what we see is there's fundamental changes going on requiring uh you know significant assets and 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 commitment but also there's a branding thing uh, you know operation going on. So anyway, it's very multifaceted. It's not just one thing and and it's what's funny is you know the news of the day so often for westerners is sports washing. Another example of something that has a branding aspect but really has some other fundamental uh, goals underneath it. uh, You know, that it's really just not just one simple thing.
2: Yeah. He, I mean, I gather from what I've been told, he's not a soccer fan. Um, He was a video game fan, but you know, he's, he's again smart enough to understand that sports is another huge area for making money. Um, So While changing the image of Saudi Arabia, the image of Saudi Arabia changes by its being active in sports and having Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, Lionel Messi as an ambassador. It is about the, I believe for him, it's about the money, stupid, to quote uh, Bill Clinton. (laughs) Uh, It's the economy stupid. And for him, it's the economy stupid. It's about, you know, um, revamping um, and and tourism and sports. They're all linked. If you get people to come to your country for some big sporting event, you can try to move them around the country to see your tourist sites. I mean, it's um, it's all quite logical, I think. But the sports washing accusation will, I'm sure, can continue. And it does change the image. I mean, undeniably, it changes the image. It's just that that's not what it's not the reason.
0: Karen, I'm glad you mentioned that. You're a longtime, obviously, observer of Saudi Arabia, visitor, journalist. Part of what we're doing with this podcast is seeking to talk about the issues that are actually important to Saudi Arabia and to understand it based on combing through every bit of information we can possibly get in our hands mm-hmm. from all sides on Saudi Arabia, visiting there often, listening to real Saudis on this podcast and off this podcast. The Wall Street Journal has excellent reporting on the Kingdom, yes. Somersaid, Stephen Kalin. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing others. It's fantastic. And a good commentary section that mentions the Kingdom with valuable voices like yours and others. And I'm wondering if part of the disruption and difficulty for media organizations over the last, let's call it two decades, depending on how far you want to go back with that. And there's a scale back in foreign bureaus and reporters abroad in general from U.S.-based organizations. Mm-hmm. Is that a contributor to the chasm or the what the U.S. media focuses on with Saudi Arabia? versus what Saudis, what's important to Saudi Arabia and what's important to, what are Saudi priorities? Um, Would you agree with that, that maybe there's just a lack of, or a shortage, I should say, of real coverage and quality reporting on what's actually going on?
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, in the old days, when I first uh, began going abroad as a diplomatic correspondent in 1978, you know, when you went to the Egyptian Israeli talks in uh Cairo, there were scores of uh US reporters um from Miami, from Chicago, from um three newspapers in New York, um, from San Francisco. I mean, now if if there's the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, that's about it. Um,
0: yeah. And Bloomberg, maybe, yeah. And
2: yeah, yeah. Well, Bloomberg, Bloomberg does a good job. I mean, from my point of view, they were competitors with Dow Jones, but I'm a subscriber to Bloomberg, and I find it as, as uh useful as uh you know, I was describing your um service. I mean, because they do so much, they have so many people. I think the journal does an incredibly good job. Uh, of both, um, of, of actually presenting the way the kingdom is moving, you know, in a in a factual and fulsome way, without snide comments or, um, you know, I mean, I I think the reporting is just uh, incredibly professional. Um, that and China, they do both of them <laughs> a great <laughs> job on, <laughs> and I don't. I obviously can't take any credit. I haven't been there in uh, 15, 20 years, you know, in, in charge. So it's not, I'm not patting myself on the back. It's just, you know, the journal continues to be very good. It's, we would uh, agree with you, uh, I think. Yeah. It, it's
1: been a great resource for us. And I'd like to do a shout out because Stephen Kalin is a fellow graduate of Davidson College. He's a ah. uh, foreign correspondent for Wall Street yeah, Journal. does a really good job.
2: I know him. <laughs> and I know Davidson College, my best friend from first grade. Father moved there as a professor, you know. It's <laughs> the first time I heard of it. But uh, didn't uh, – didn't uh, what's the great basketball Steph player?
1: Curry, Steph yes. Curry, Steph yeah. Yeah. yes. Steph Curry,
2: yes. Also went there. So there are some very famous uh, – davidson Greg.
1: absolutely and way back to way well, way back dean rusk went there as well but there's a the um so anyway it, no and but you know steven does you, you agree wall street journal does a does a first-rate job on he's on,
2: he's, he's extremely
0: good go, go wildcats last go question wild if, we, if we may um <laughs> you uh travel has been extensive to saudi arabia over your career 45 years you said was ago roughly was your first visit what do you have a next visit to saudi arabia planned i'm sure it's not in the next six weeks uh during the (laughs) summer um as you are in maine now but do you have a next visit to saudi arabia planned
2: yeah i'm um hoping to go i just got a new passport and thus a new visa um and i'm planning to go in late september or october
1: very nice
0: fantastic American journalist, author, media executive, and Pulitzer Prize winner, Karen Elliott House. It was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on The X.
2: Thank you for having me. I truly enjoyed it.
0: That was our conversation with Karen Elliott House, a true joy and treat to speak with her. Pulitzer Prize winner, Richard, the first one we've had on the show, hopefully not the last one, but she was wonderful.
1: I hadn't. I wasn't aware of that. I I guess that does make perfect sense. It's not as if we had a parade of Pulitzer Prize winners. <laughs> so that's that's a good point, uh, which made it even more special. Yep, absolutely. And you know, we sort of,
0: Richard, we do these readouts and read-ins for our guests because we properly want to introduce them. Because you know, if you're listening to this, especially, you're not seeing all their you know, creds on the show on right. the screen. So you need to know who we're talking to. And a lot of people know who Karen Elliott House is, and a lot of our guests, cause they're well-known in this, you know, large community, but, um, you know, so, but anyway, that read-ins for her and readouts, it, we had to cut like one, you know, take maybe one eighth or one tenth of her bio. Cause she's just oh, so incredibly accomplished. So, and so anyway, so we really appreciate her time. She joined us from Maine, which was cool. Yes. Probably the first one to join us from Maine, the state of Maine. I'm sure it's nice and cool up there. Um, Richard, <laughs> let's jump into it. What do you think? Let's get to yellow. Let's get the yellow.
1: Yellow, Saudi. In a minute, yellow.
0: Yellow. <laughs> Does it sound better when we're much closer? Maybe we should be doing that. I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, we should lean in. I we, know. We I we complain. don't. And by time. the way, My we audio stinks.
0: I should mention. Yes, we know that uh, we're we're working with our audio. Um, we're neither of us are. Key grips or whatever it is in the business, we're working on that. We're gonna get that all upgraded. So, but thank you for being patient with us for that. We're not, we're not a AV expert, so um, it's a a good product, but it's not, you know, uh, yeah, quite the Howard
1: Stern show yet. So supposedly we have we have decent quality mics, but we need to get better because the uh, the audio, especially mine, is always weak. Yeah. Um, Yella number one the wall street journal first reported that saudi arabia is set to host peace talks among western countries ukraine and key developing countries including india and brazil on august five and six this weekend as europe and washington intensify efforts to consolidate international ports support for ukraine's peace demands
0: so richard um w- why are they doing this is this I mean, is this because they're really one of the few countries that are well positioned right in between the two sides to do it? I mean, is it because that they are they actually are uniquely positioned to do it? I think maybe yes.
1: I would say yes. Yes. I mean, you know, I guess Zelensky came through on his way to the G seven meetings and stopped off at the Arab League Confab, Jeddah. Um and you know, so this was probably mooted then. And they talked about it. I think it's extraordinary. I mean, uh, they're, they're looking to bring senior officials from up to thirty countries. Uh, you know, Ukraine has a ten-point plan. They want to quote unquote socialize. Um, you put you put you know, Saudi Arabia is is well positioned both in terms of relationship with the Russia. Uh, it's it's uh, relationship with the global south. I think this is an extraordinary statement on how far Saudi Arabia has come. This is pretty amazing if you think about it. And we talk about the diplomatic renaissance in Saudi Arabia over the last 18 months or so. Uh, and we talk about their perception of themselves as a middle power and a globally, you know, a, a geostrategically key nexus between Europe, Asia and Africa. But this is really affirmation of that, uh, uh, you know. Uh, we don't know what's going to come of it, and obviously Russia's not going to be there. It would be a big deal if if China comes. That's not for certain. Uh, but uh, it's still a coup anyway that Saudi Arabia has been given this opportunity and is perceived as capable of hosting such a confab.
0: And hopefully, Richard, there is some resolution to this because this war in Ukraine is absolutely terrible. and we're hoping for that. That would be an amazing breakthrough. So we're rooting for that and good on saudi arabia for doing this so this is coming up on august 5th and 6th as you said so we'll probably be discussing it a good bit next, next week, week maybe yeah. yeah for episode 98 which is good to just say over <laughs> and over thank we don't forget just, yeah exactly which episode you just, we're on <laughs> 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 richard yellow number two saudi arabia is giving yemen's presidential council 1.2 billion excuse me us dollars to help the country's struggling economy a Saudi source told Reuters on Tuesday fighting with the Iran aligned Houthis in North Yemen has largely stopped over the last year but the saudi backed government based in Aden has grappled with a weak currency and high prices the situation has particularly worsened in Aden and South Yemen since several Houthi drone attacks targeted oil tankers in southern oil terminals stopping the government exporting crude oil from there
1: the uh you know, the United States is quite familiar with this conundrum, which is, um, it's expensive to get in and expensive to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia engaged in this uh, this war in Yemen uh, against the Houthis in 2015. Um, they'd like to get out. The Houthis are making it difficult for them to get out, uh, having some sort of political resolution it's isn't expensive it, you know it's not a hot it's not hot right now because we have a truce for close to a year now so um, just you know the expenses of maintaining a, a, a military presence and and feeding a military presence it, saudi arabia doesn't have that but you know the the great bulk of the rebuilding cost is going to fall on saudi arabia and this is just the beginning And it, what's interesting, I guess the Yemeni officials said the donation would be used to pay government wages, fuel for power plants and fuel food imports. All these things needed, government wages in particular. And a sticking point on their negotiations with the Houthis, the Houthis want their soldiers to be paid. <laughs> <You>
0: know, <laughs> Understandable.
1: They, yeah, Houthis have been, you know, Houthis been sort of doing some maximalist requests. And the Saudis going, look, we want to be responsive, but we're not going to pay your soldiers to, to you know, fight us.
0: Yeah. How, their, how would that look? Yeah. 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 Um, interesting. It's good to see that they have had a a, a year of this sort of. I mean, because yeah. a few years ago it was really bad there. So, but there's a ton of rebuilding. Um, and it's interesting. I think a lot of Saudi UAE Saudi UAE friction comes. You know, the new the newest friction and competitiveness comes from from Yemen, and how yes. to rebuild it and how they you know the, all about the war. So. I mean,
1: and getting to a stable political resolution is is a, a long way to go. I mean, does, 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 the, does the country stay intact? Who knows? I mean, there's, there's a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, Yellow number three, Saudi Arabia's stocks offer some of the best buying opportunities in emerging markets if investors look beyond oil. Please refer mm-hmm. to Lucian's One Big Thing. Yep. According to a top-performing fund manager, the, the the kingdom's initiatives to reduce eco, its economic reliance on crude will boost the market even as the global backdrop may be challenging, says Fiera Capitalist Dominique Bocor Ingram, who has doubled his fund's exposure to Saudi stocks to 20%. His EM fund, Emerging Markets Fund, has beaten 99% of peers this year, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. While the Middle Eastern nation's stock fortunes have long moved in sync with crude prices, shares of healthcare, tech, and insurance firms are surging in the Tadawal All-Share Index this year. The benchmark itself has rallied 12%, outperforming emerging market gauges.
0: What a journey for the Tadawal, Richard. It's really been, I mean, it's really risen. And and of course, we've discussed this on the show, they've opened up very steadily to foreign investment um not too long ago richard you couldn't buy saudi stocks even if you had five billion dollars aum now some of these fund managers can it's getting more and more open i mean we can't go online to like schwab and buy some saudi stocks yet but but it's getting to be that type of thing and so i don't have too much to add to this but that's interesting i mean this this fund manager is saying hey I'm on a hot streak and I'm doubling down on Saudi Arabia. That's something. That's definitely something to look at.
1: It's not. One of our early pieces was on the Saudi stock market. And uh, it's before your, you know, remember the Twilight Zone? Yes. I love that show. And Rod Serling. And, and, and the. I think the popular recall is that he would start episodes with Imagine, if you will actually he never said that that's not what he would say what he would say is there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man this dimension is vast as space and timeless as infinity it is the middle ground between light and shadow between science and superstition superstition so this is where we go on our on our yellows <laughs> but but you know the reason i said that is when you and i went to the same place actually when we did this yellow i said imagine if you will so this is you know the saudi arabia Looking back a decade ago or more going, okay, imagine if you will, if we completely reformed our stock market and made it a reliable place to invest, what would happen? And, you know, in in the segment we did way back when, we talked about the stock market crash of 2006. And this is, you know, the market's highly speculative, very thin. But a lot of people, middle-class Saudis, you know, had their money in it. They were selling their cars and, and you know, investing and it went from 2,500 to 20,000 points in three years and then collapsed to 8,000 points. People lost their shirts. Mm-hmm. It was it was terrible. But, you know, the next year, the Tadawul that we know, Tazi All Shares Index, was established, 2007. 2015, opened the QFIs, Qualified Foreign Investors. 2019, made part of the MSCI and other Emerging Markets Index. So, you know, we do this all the time on the show, but I think it's important to remember this didn't just happen. This was a very uh, intentional result of policies that were uh, taken up, you know, starting 2007. So that's whatever, 16 years ago. And it's now we now, you know, you now see the fruits of this where you have a, 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 some say a top ten force, top ten stock market in the, in the in the globe that is transparent, easily accessible, deep enough that you can make money. And now you're making money in non oil uh, assets. It's it, you know this this is just a blurb right here, but it's 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 the tip of the iceberg of what's been going on in capital markets for Saudi Arabia for the last fifteen years, and it's a big deal. Yeah. Uh-
0: uh stock market that ipo'd itself yeah. successfully um somewhat recently and and you know richard it's a great point we, it's easy for us for others sitting in their comfortable armchairs and smoke-filled rooms to say well i just you know reform the stock market and uh don't let people go to a bank and take a bank loan to buy stocks you know like uh, that seems straightforward it seems obvious but then to actually do that to enact this r- the reforms to the tadawal other reforms that seem obvious or seem like a no brainer allowing women to drive that it just, it doesn't just happen overnight. It can't happen overnight. A lot of times that's where mistakes are made. If you just rush into it and look at where it got them, look at the Tasi. Now look at the title. now they now even else also have a parallel market. No moo. I mean, kudos to them for doing it correctly. And, and they should be proud of where they are, um and that that stock market is. So, and
1: they, they they've they've learned on the way. You remember the QFI, the qualifying uh investor. the 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 obstacles to you know admittance were uh, too restrictive, too high. You know, so you just limited, and they were concerned because they were a little gun shy. They don't know who's going to come in. They want to make sure it's not taken over by foreign investors but they learned so now it's fairly easy to get in they you know they they have best practices they've they've adopted all you know all the most globally practiced um accounting methods and you know and and you know and uh, so anyway it, it's it's been a it's been a it's been a process uh and it's not always been easy but they've done it and they have a viable stock market that is actually a significant uh Incentive for people to start businesses, grow businesses, and then IPO them themselves out of the business. This is what this is what capital markets do. This is what healthy capital markets do. It's it's really it's, it's a nice sign. Absolutely, uh, Richard Yellen, number four.
0: An escalating dispute over a gas field in the Persian Gulf, or as I have been corrected, people say, make sure you say Arabian Gulf. <laughs> An escalating dispute over a gas field in the Arabian Gulf poses an early challenge to a Chinese brokered agreement to reconcile regional rivals in Saudi Arabia and Iran. Saudi Arabia and neighboring Kuwait jointly claim the offshore Aldura gas field. Iran says it has rights to the field, which it refers to as Arash. So Persian Gulf, Arabian Gulf, Aldura, Arash. The two sides held talks in Iran in March, but were unable to agree on bo- on a border demarcation it's unclear whether the, the dispute over the gas field which goes back to the 1960s will escalate beyond rhetoric but tensions are already high in the persian gulf arabian gulf where the us is building up military forces in response to what it says is iran's unlawful seizure of oil tankers and harassment of commercial vehicles and vessels i said vehicles it's actually vessels. It's commercial. that wasn't my best read i'm sorry everybody <laughs> it's okay um
1: Yes. I mean, this is, it is interesting. I mean, the, you know, the, the turning to the U S and this is the burden that the U S has, has borne for decades. Uh, and it's a value to the globe, which is securing, uh, you know, shipping lanes and the free and access three free transport of energy and, and other goods. Uh, you know, it's been the, 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 coattail that China and Russia and everybody else rides on. Uh, and so now China wants to be more involved. Let's see, let's, let's see let's see, you know, right now the Gulf, the the region is turning to the U S It's for whatever reason, Iran's been a bit feisty of late things like this, which isn't really a controversy. I mean, and I think Saudi Arabia and Kuwait are willing to take it to an international court. I don't think Iran wants any part of it because they know they lose. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're trying to be reasonable. Iran is so, we don't know why, you know, Iran's sticking the you know, you know, hitting a, a hornet's nest here right now, but it is an interesting case study to see if China has any interest in involving itself or any ability to change uh, Iran's behavior.
0: Yeah, this is this seems like it could get a little sticky yeah. quickly unless somebody backs down here. So definitely another point of of interest to watch, Richard.
1: Yes, um, number five. Speaking at the Brazil Saudi Arabia Investment Forum in Sao Paulo. Khaled al Falah, the kingdom's investment minister, said green energy and food security are two of the main sectors in which Saudi Arabia is interested in investing in Brazil. He also cited the financial, automotive, agricultural, transport and logistics, infrastructure, ecotourism and entertainment sectors as other areas of interest. Quote, with the evolution of the global South, Coupled with the shared values between Brazil and Saudi Arabia, aligned strategic interest and strong private sectors, which we have so much respect for. Why couldn't we become a top five investor in each other's country? Unquote, he said.
0: Richard, they signed a deal on halal food stuffs, I believe, was one of the deals signed at this forum. There has been an uptick in Brazil, Saudi relations in recent years and Richard our mutual friend Abdul Rahman al-Bakir with the Ministry of Investment um is specifically involved in this it's interesting it's um you know this is Saudi Arabia branching out its relations and, and trade relations all over the globe and you see it not just in Latin America but you also see it in the Caribbean um and elsewhere around the world pretty cool
1: yeah, and I don't, that's the specific reason it was included, just sort of to point out Saudi Arabia's, um, you know, Brazil is one of the BRICs, you know, Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. I think eventually would like to be part of that. But it's, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's, in Saudi Arabia sees it as like to like, you know, this is a middle power, significant economic player. You know, we should be doing business. Richard, dare I suggest that there may be
0: some Football synergies at play as well. I mean, you know, there's no way for us to know that. <laughs> no, and that's
1: total speculation. B- b- but. I, I see. Yeah, that's right. Well, we, as we as we know from the last one big thing, my last one big thing, there are 28 Brazilians in the Saudi Professional League. That's right. The second largest uh, nationality. So maybe there's already a pipeline.
0: Richard yellow number six Hollywood gets snubbed in Saudi Arabia as local language films begin to dominate according to the Hollywood Reporter quote there was a shock at the top of the Saudi Arabian box office the first weekend of 2023 Avatar the way of water in its third week of release and still a dominant force across the planet on its way to an overall haul in excess of 2.3 billion dollars was knocked off its perch by a new title holder Sitar, a Saudi Arabian family comedy about a depressed man who follows his dreams of becoming a freestyle wrestling champion. The film smashed box office records, earning $2.2 million over its first 12 days, instantly making it the highest grossing Saudi movie of all time. Seven months later, Richard, on, and Sitar is currently sitting pretty at the top of Saudi Arabia's overall 2023 box office with an impressive haul of $10.7 million. $10.7 million.
1: Interesting. I, you know, I don't have anything to add to that other than this is pretty cool. And it and it seems sense. like, you know, 50% of Saudis don't speak English. So, you know, this is going to speak to them. Not only is it, uh, you know, accessible, you know, in terms of language, but it's probably much more culturally resonant with them. Um, although I don't know how many Saudi lukadors there are, but <laughs> it, it, the, uh, you know, and this is, again, you know, it, this is part of the process you know celebrating and bringing forward local talent regional talent Arab talent Muslim talent um and uh and it's it's this is a nice little benchmark on the way as they as they move along this path yeah Richard
0: Hollywood wants to get in on the Arab market not just Saudi Arabia but all over the Arab world and Some of the movies they are producing are not culturally a fit with what audiences may want there, what they allow. Barbie Barbie, may not
1: get an opening. Barbie
0: may not get an opening. It's already pushed back. It was supposed to open actually two days before in the U.S. uh, it opened, and it's been pushed back. And that kind of makes sense. I haven't seen it. I heard it's really good. I have not spoken to a single person who didn't like it. So um, you know that I don't go to movie theaters, so it's going to be a while until I see it. But... um, (laughs) i do want to see it um but yeah it this is interesting richard we've had some really great guests in the cultural and cinema space um todd albert nims comes to mind just at the very top of our uh, of my head but um, right this is an interesting i mean this is saudi arabia investing it goes back to our discussion on non-oil economy i mean they're developing a cinema and film industry and that's going to help the local economy so just an interesting story that ties those together
1: it's a good one
0: yeah richard this was a good one um. Really, really appreciate Karen uh, Elliott House's time. Just an awesome conversation. And we have a run of great guests coming up, Richard, as we march toward our 100th episode. We should do something very special. We'll talk about that off the air, but that's, that's cool. And uh, this was good, Richard. Thank you.
1: This was awesome awesome. And and I want to remind you, Lucian, just in case you forget, this is episode number ninety-seven.
0: This is ninety seven. Ninety-eight next week. So if we come on and say something that's not ninety-eight, then it'll it'll likely likely know that we've lost our minds. <laughs> or that we are an AI generation. Oh, no, there you of, go. Of this. What you're hearing now is authentically Richard Wilson and Lucian Ziegler. However,
1: just that's future. a good way to
0: make sure, you know, that's like a code word to make sure that you know that's right. for sure. So
1: blink if you need help. <laughs>
0: Richard, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, man. Great one.